The Macro View, episode 38. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. All right, welcome to the second part of this uh, multi-part series here. I believe it will be a four-part four series in total. Still haven't decided whether to break the uh, final discussion on risk measurement into two episodes or just do a single episode about it. I will uh, make that decision over the next day. So I'll let you guys know on tomorrow night's episode. So tonight we're going to have a little bit of fun with our episode. I know that uh, sometimes listening to somebody talk, talk a little bit about math and calculations is not the most exciting use of your time. So tonight we're going to be discussing cap rates, the compound annual growth rate, and then we're going to close out with a discussion about some popular or commonly used valuation ratios. Um, So, and then I hope to get to, might be cramming it in a little bit, I hope to get to uh, a discussion about which valuation ratios I prefer to use, why, and where and when they are useful. Um, so first, though, we're going to be discussing compound growth rates. So compounding is one of the most incredible forces in investing. Many of the world's greatest investors and many of the world's wealthiest hedge fund managers became wealthy starting out with very small amount under management or of their own money relative to their sizable fortunes today. The way they accumulated wealth over the decades was by allowing their money to compound. So if you went down the street, and you just ask 10 people, would you rather have a million dollars right now or would you rather have a single penny that doubled in value every day for 30 days? Most people, naive of the power of compounding, would simply say they want the million dollars. But the single penny, however, after doubling every day for 30 days, is 10.7 times greater than the million dollars and it's only 30 days out. So it is the first day, the penny is a penny, right? The second day, the penny is two pennies. The third, it's four pennies. And by the 10th day, it's $9.24. By the 20th day, it's over $10,000. And by the 30th day, it's over $10 million. So there's only two answers for choosing the million now. Either their time preference is extremely short-horizoned. That is that they value the million dollars now more than $10.7 million in just 30 days from now, or they just don't understand the power of compounding. So obviously there's not a great likelihood that you came across such an investment that allowed you to double your money every day for 30 days. Maybe, maybe some of the folks that got into Bitcoin at just the right time, right before it exploded in value, experienced something Not quite like that, but something very similar. There is, however, a 30-year period, over a 30-year period, the opportunity to achieve a return that multiplies your wealth significantly. If you simply cut and run with your gains and you don't compound your gains, if you take some off the table, so to speak, you're missing out on some of the power of compounding. Now, when we get back from our first break, we're going to start by discussing compounded annual growth rates and how to calculate them. And we're going to do so while 
discussing the nuances of a recent Oxfam report that I'm sure many of you have heard about. We're going to discuss one particular aspect of that report, though, and that is the claim that Bill Gates, by 2042, is likely to become the world's first trillionaire, which is not totally full of crap, only about half full of crap. Um, and it's, I mean, theoretically, it's possible, but it's highly unlikely, and we're going to discuss why it's highly unlikely. But in doing so, we're also going to discuss how to calculate the compounded annual growth rate. So when we get back, we're going to take a look at the numbers. We're going to teach our listeners how to calculate that compounded growth rate. I, typically, you'll hear people say compounded annual growth rate. It could be monthly. It could be daily, as our example shows with, with the penny. But typically, you're looking at a, a annual calculation. We're going to use an annual calculation. So we're going to get back, when we get back, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how to apply it and when, when evaluating a, a uh, prospective investment. So we'll be right back after this quick break. All right, folks. So I know most, if not all of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist strawman. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as an introduction to logic, the history of economic thought, Austrian economics step-by-step, John Maynard Keynes' system and its fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western civilization history courses, freedom's progress, the history of political thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. All right, we're back. So Oxfam released a report not too long ago condemning wealth and wealth inequality, etc., etc. I'm not going to get into the whole meat of the discussion. We will do an episode uh, on it pretty soon. I've, I've heard a couple of podcasts that have discussed it. I've heard, um, you know, a number of, of people on, on financial news networks uh, discuss this particular report. So I, I believe most of my listeners have probably already heard a thorough debunking of it. Um, but it is a bunch of baloney. I will have to discuss it in greater detail on, on a future episode and, and try to find something unique to discuss about it. But I think that the the thing that we're going to discuss today is a little bit of, a little bit unique. You've had a bunch of uh, a bunch of so-called uh, news websites and newspapers and newspaper websites for that matter discuss this particular claim, the claim that Bill Gates is go- likely to become the world's first trillionaire, which is a there, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance to it. Like I said, I guess it's theoretically possible. It's highly unlikely, though. And the way that they come about this um, 
this claim is totally uh, it's not rooted in any kind of realistic measurement. It doesn't discuss the nuances at all. They kind of just state it as a fact. Uh, but basically, the main you know that's the main claim we're going to discuss from this article, which I prefer to call it an article. Some people have called it a report. It's really a long form opinion piece based on socialist pseudoscientific and economic analysis. So first off, the claim is a little bit unrealistic. So after we discuss the compound annual growth rate that Mr. Gates would have to achieve to become a trillionaire, we'll discuss why it's a bit unrealistic. So currently, Bill Gates is worth about $84.4 billion, at least of, uh, as of last, the last report. Um, so he's about $915.6 billion away from becoming a trillionaire. Now, to find the compound annual growth rate, we would first need to know the number of years, and the article gives that it's 25 years. Obviously, anybody listening to this that, that knows how to click around the internet and find, find the podcast knows how to subtract to 2042 from 2017. So to find the compound annual growth rate, we would also need to know the multiple return. So to do that, we don't need to type, type out on a calculator one followed by 12 zeros to, to give us a trillion dollars. We can simply divide 1,000 by 84.4, given that a trillion is a thousand billion. So 1,000 divided by 84.4 is 11.85. So it's, I rounded there a little bit. I rounded to the second decimal point, but to get the actual multiple return, you'd subtract one. So the multiple return is 10.85 X, you know, how you'd refer to that 10.85x return uh, or total return to find the compound annual growth rate however you, you don't subtract the one just yet so the compound annual growth rate is found by lifting the multiple return plus one so 10.85 plus one or 11.85 uh, to the one divided by the nth power where N represents the number of periods, in this case, years. So in the case of Bill Gates and the compound annual growth rate he would need to achieve to become a trillionaire, it would be 1,000 divided by 84.4. That would be in parentheses. And then that would be lifted. You actually don't need to use parentheses. Or excuse me, you do need to use parentheses because parentheses would be calculated before the exponent. So you put it in parentheses and then you would lift the multiple return, which is 11.85 to the one over one divided by 25 or the one over the 25th power. So I'll put these formulas on the show page. Cause I know it could be a little bit hard to follow along when you're just hearing it. Um, so if you're not listening to it from the show page, go and listen to this episode from the show page. It's very important. But again, it's the multiple return, so 11.85 in the case of, of Bill Gates becoming a trillionaire. Multiple return plus one, in parentheses, and then that would be lifted to the one divided by the nth power, where n represents the number of years. The number of years in the case of Bill Gates is 20, tr becoming a, a trillionaire, according to the, uh, the Oxfam claim. It's 25 years, so it would be one divided by the 25th power. Now, when the answer comes out on the other end, 
then you would need to subtract the one to find the percentage return or the compound annual growth rate, the percentage compound annual growth rate. Because remember, you start with one. He's starting with 84.4 billion. In the case of a multiple return, that's the one. So in order to fig find out the actual percentage rate, it wouldn't be 100 and whatever percent. It would just be, you would subtract the one. So uh, again, I'll put the formula at macroviewnews.com. Head there if you're not listening to this uh, episode from there already. So what is the compound annual growth rate that Bill Gates would need to become a trillionaire? It's 10.4%. Now, 10.4% compound annual growth rate does not mean a 10.4% annual return. That would be the average annualized return. This would be the an average annualized return. The annual return or the average annual return could vary from 10.4%. The actual yearly return each year could be very, very, very different. It doesn't need to consistently, steadily earn 10.4%. That's the compound annual growth rate that he would need to earn. The average annual return would just simply, and that's not the annualized average return, that's the average annual return, would simply be the sum of each year's return divided by 25 in this example, because that would be the number of, of years that you're looking at. It's the same formula as averaging any number. So before we move on to discuss the cap rate, which is a valuation tool used exclusively in real estate, and then go on to discuss valuation ratios, and then tie all this together in discussing when you use compound annual growth rate, when you use valuation ratios when you're trying to figure out or decide between a perspective or multiple perspective investments. Before we get there, I do want to touch briefly on why it's slightly unrealistic to make the claim that Bill Gates will become the world's first trillionaire. So first off, the basis of the claim from Oxfam is that wealth is continuing to concentrate more and more. And not only does this not account for the fact that there are many new billionaires Right, So, I mean, it's not concentrating amongst the same people. There's new billionaires being created. The founder of Uber was dead broke, had failed at a business multiple times at, at potential businesses he, he tried to start and was living with his parents. And according to the way the story goes, was contemplating suicide not too long ago. His parents had to ask one of his friends to drag him out of the house. So one of his friends took him to a conference where he came up with the idea for Uber, and now all of a sudden he's a multi-billionaire. So it's just a bunch of uh, – it's a, it's a load of fooey. It, it's not true. There's new billionaires being created. There's new wealthy people being created. And at the same time, there's wealthy people that go broke when their businesses go bankrupt or they make bad investments. Having said that, this also doesn't explain at all how billions of people have been dragged out of poverty while these billionaires became wealthy by providing them goods and services that they demanded that they weren't able to access before or weren't able to afford before. Nor does this mention that maybe, just maybe, if there is this so-called concentration of wealth, you know, maybe that just so happened around the, the time that most of the developed countries in the world, such as Europe and the U.S., have been implementing some of the most destructive interventions by central banks and national governments since the collapse of the Soviet Union. While at the same time, third world countries 
and developing countries have largely opened up their market and wealthy people are able to go and invest in these frontier and developing markets. So it doesn't mention anything about that. But besides that, the report fails to mention a basic fact of investing. That fact is what we call in the business capacity. So when a single investor, a single fund grows to a certain point, it can no longer, without taking on massive concentration risks, find the investments that would allow them to continue to achieve such high returns consistently that they achieve to grow to the size that they're at now. Now, you remember, Bill Gates wasn't always a billionaire. He wasn't born a billionaire. He became a billionaire by starting Microsoft and being the majority shareholder of Microsoft. And as Microsoft grew, he was basically fully invested in Microsoft and he achieved a significant return by concentrating all of his wealth in that one investment. But you can't continue to do that forever. So he still has a lot of his wealth in Microsoft, but he's slowly been selling off a lot of his shares in Microsoft and diversifying. The other thing this so-called report, really more of a long-form opinion piece, uh, does, which is a nice little trick, is that when trying to make the claim that Bill Gates is going to become a trillionaire in 25 years, they start at the bottom in 2009 after markets globally had crashed during the financial crisis. And then they try to claim that Gates will experience the same level of returns that he has experienced since the bottom in 2009 till now. And that's just absurd. Now, nobody does that. Furthermore, as a demonstration of capacity, Bill Gates, who surely could invest in any number of the world's best money managers, any number of the world's best hedge funds, etc., has quite significantly underperformed the market over the past eight years. So the S&P 500, since the bottom, has grown at about 16.34% compound annual growth rate, and Bill Gates has grown his wealth by about 11% over the same period. Lastly, this report barely mentions the fact, albeit they do mention, but basically in passing, that Mr. Gates has generously donated massive amounts of his wealth, often to many of the poorest countries on earth, for things as vital as clean water infrastructure and schools and has donated cellular phones and all sorts of stuff. Now, on an earlier episode, I absolutely railed against Bill Gates for calling for quote-unquote socialism to uh, solve global warming, a topic that I will be discussing on an upcoming episode after I finish this series. The first episode I'm doing is about global warming, and I'm I'm doing it from a, a standpoint that you probably haven't heard before, so you're sure to get a, a, a very interesting analysis um, of the matter. I'm not just going to go out and, like a lot of people on the right, just deny it. Um, I'm not going to claim that it's going to be a disaster, like all the people on the left. I'm going to give a, a pretty good analysis of the reality if climate change and global warming is an actual reality. So I think you'll want to uh, you want to tune in for that. So having said that, you know I, I do want to give Bill Gates credit. He does donate a lot of money. He's an extremely generous person. He's also an extremely wealthy person. And I don't disparage him one bit for his wealth. Good for him. He invented one of the most important or, or created one of the most important companies of the 20th century that made it affordable for most people to get a personal computer. And he sparked thousands of different, thousands of different companies and businesses and, and, you know, I, I, you could probably count 
you could pro- probably can't count on two hands the number of industries that have come out, whole industries that have come out of what Bill Gates and the other uh, tech revolutionaries that brought us the personal computers have ha- have done and, and contributed to society. It's absolutely phenomenal. I wouldn't be able to be doing this right now, this podcast, if it weren't for Bill Gates. And I don't want to say if it weren't for Bill Gates, if, if it weren't for the personal computer, which Bill Gates was a revolutionary in uh, bringing into households. So I think it is not only truly disingenuous and that his statements were full of lies when he was talking about the socialistic, but it was actually really dangerous as well. That The interview that he did where he said that's very dangerous. It will be used to call for socialism here in the U.S. in the next election cycle without a doubt. It'll embolden uh, folks on, on the far left, uh, which are obviously by far the most dangerous people uh, in the United States. But uh, the reason why it's so dangerous coming out of somebody like Bill, Bill Gates' mouth is that as a wealthy, respected, powerful, uh, intelligent person that people look up to, statements like that get taken to heart by people on the left. And they're going to run with it. And they're going to use it over and over and over again. That's what they do. So enough about old Billy. We do have to take a quick break. But then when we get back, after this message, I will finish up our discussion discussion tonight uh, with discussing the cap rate. And then I'm going to discuss, and that's exclusively real estate. I'm going to fit that in there. And then I'm going to discuss commonly used valuation ratios for stock market investing or, or equity investing. So we'll be right back after this quick break. All right, everyone. So I've got another great resource for those of you that are saying, Andrew, you know, I'd love to do Tom Woods' master level courses on Liberty Classroom, but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on Liberty and Austrian economics. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons, you'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Boot Camp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting and harness the knowledge that you need today. Okay, we are back. So the cap rate is exclusively used in real estate investing. And the cap rate is essentially the net operating income or the NOI. Not essentially, it is. The NOI, which the NOI is the revenue minus insurance and maintenance cost and government theft, aka taxes. So cap rate is the NOI divided by the purchase price. So if you buy a piece of real estate for let's say $500,000 and it generates rents of 25,000 a year after 
subtracting insurance, maintenance, and taxes, the cap rate is 5% or uh, 25,000 divided by 500,000. And actually, I believe that the cap rate does not include taxes. I, I, I don't, I, I believe they misspoke there. The cap rate actually does not include taxes. It's insurance and maintenance cost. Um, so the, the cap rate would be on something where you receive $25,000 after subtracting insurance and maintenance the and you purchased it for 500,000 the cap rate's 5% which you know 25,000 divided by 500,000 is 5% pretty simple stuff depending on the type of real estate you're buying you may require a higher or you may be willing to accept a lower cap rate for example a value added piece of real estate one that's going to require some work be done on it you may want to aim for like an 8% cap rate whereas a class A commercial building that's fully leased with today's low interest rates, you may be willing to accept a 4 or 5% cap rate, possibly even lower. Farmland, for example, was recently selling at cap rates as low as 2% in some areas. Now, essentially, the safer the investment, the less work that needs to be done with it in order to make it a high-quality property, the lower the cap rate. With value-add real estate, the goal is to fix it up, or to get the building fully leased to add value. And by doing so, to be able to drive the cap rate down, not because of lost income, but rather through an increased price. So really quickly, because we are running out of time here, and I want to discuss some of the most commonly referred to and commonly used valuation ratios in stock market investing or equity investing. The first that I want to discuss is the PE ratio. PE ratio as absolutely nothing to do with your physical education class. The PE ratio is the price divided by the earnings. So it could be calculated as market cap divided by total earnings, earnings, but typically it's calculated as the price per share divided by the earnings per share. Now, this is essentially the dollar price paid now for a dollar of earnings in the future. So if the price per share of ABC company is $100 per share, and they just just came off a year where they generated $5 in per share earnings, the P.E. ratio or the price to earnings ratio is 100 divided by 5 or 20. So you're paying $20 for a dollar of earnings in the future. Now, historically, P.E. ratios have hovered around 15 on the S&P 500. Currently, the P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 is 25.7. So historically, it's high. There are some nuances Uh, to that story. And one of the things that needs to kind of be thought about with the PE ratio currently is that there are far fewer publicly traded companies today than there were just not too long ago. So after the passing of Sarbanes-Oxley, which which we discussed on episode 32, the number of publicly traded companies declined significantly. This meant less supply of publicly traded companies. And at the same time, global demand for U.S. publicly traded investments has increased partially because we have extremely low interest rates. So a lot of money gets shifted into riskier investments and equity investments, uh, but also other factors as well. So this has created a premium on earnings. Now it's yet to be seen if this is sustainable or if S&P companies will increase their earnings significantly and drive the PE ratio down back towards historic norms. But PE ratios sometimes are also based on anticipated earnings or what are referred to as 
forward earnings, which is typically based on a consensus estimate of analysts. So if you've ever watched a financial news network during the earnings season, that is when companies are reporting their earnings after the end of a quarter, you'll hear news anchors refer to a company's earnings as missing or beating the estimates. Now, these estimates are what are used to calculate forward PE ratios or looking, you know, price to earnings ratios that look at the anticipated earnings over the next year or the, the next 12 months, next four quarters, however you want to look at it. So you have a number of these per share ratios that are used. It can be price to sales. It can be price to cash flow. Um, you have yield. Uh, yield is the dividend, if there is any, the per share dividend divided by the price per share. Now, that will be represented as a percentage. You also have modified PE ratios, such as the PEG ratio, uh, or the price to earnings to growth ratio, and the CAPE ratio. So, the PEG ratio is the price to earnings to growth ratio. Now, basically, typically growth rates are represented in a percentage, but it depends on where you get it. It may not be represented in a percentage. So, if it is represented in a percentage, you need to multiply that percentage by 100, and, and then you would divide the price to earnings ratio by the percentage growth rate in earnings times 100 if it's a percentage. If it's not representative as a percentage, do not multiply it by 100. There's also the CAPE ratio, which I, I mentioned, which is the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. Now, I'm running out of time, and as a result, I think that probably tomorrow, uh, tomorrow as part of the episode, I'm going to schedule in some time to discuss where on a company's income statement, cash flow statement, or balance sheet, you'll find some of these items so that you can go, for example, sales. You'll often hear sales referred to as top line. The, uh, the earnings is the bottom line. I'll explain that in a little bit greater detail. And on tomorrow night's show page, I will uh, put some examples on the show page for listeners to go and look at. And I'll point out where you find these items. One last ratio that I want to talk about, though, is the price-to-book ratio. So price-to-book ratio is the, per, the price per share divided by the book value. Now, the book value is the net assets owned by equity holders, okay? And tomorrow, I will show you on a balance sheet on the show page, I will put a, a, uh, an example of a balance sheet of a corporate balance sheet I will post a picture of one or a file that, that you can see on the show page, and I will point out on it where you find these different items. But I personally, so I mentioned I was going to, this is why I wanted to get to to uh, get to this before we, we let everybody go, but I do want to talk about some of the, the valuation ratios that I personally believe are most important. And, and for me, those are the PEG ratio the price-to-earnings growth ratio, and book value, uh, price-to-book value. And there's a couple of reasons why. So a company, it, it, first of all, when you're investing in equity, you want to know that the company has a strong balance sheet, that they're not riddled with debt, that they don't have a lot of liabilities, that they have strong assets, and that those assets, a, percent, a good percentage of those assets, are owned by the equity holders. Now, if you have a price of a company that's trading below the book value, that company is going to be a takeover target 
they're going to be a takeover target. They're, if, if you could buy the assets for less, the, the, if the assets are worth more than what the company is currently trading at, then that's a pretty good investment. Now, there could be a reason for that. You don't just want to take price to book value at, at face value, so to speak. Uh, you also want to look at the peg ratio. Do they have earnings? Have they been growing earnings? Because that could be a good indicator if they are trading near or below book value, why they're trading near or below book value. If they've been, if they've displayed declining growth in earnings or even declining earnings, investors may be selling their shares in the company because they believe that the company is lose is, is on a path towards losing money or is being operated inefficiently and they're discounting the assets that they own. The assets aren't being used to full capacity, whatever the reason is. There could also be economic reasons. Um, and we will have to get to an episode where we discuss economic indicators and what they're useful for, if anything. Um, but price to book value and then peg ratio, when you combine them, can give you some really good insight as to whether or not you're making a good investment, whether or not you're making the investment that you're making uh, is providing good value. And that's really the key. You want you a, a stock could be really expensive and only cost five dollars a share, and a stock could be really cheap and cost ten thousand dollars a share. the The price per share is really based on the earnings and the assets or the net assets that are owned. So tomorrow night we'll get into that discussion a little bit deeper and discuss why some of these ratios are really important, when to use them, how to use them, uh, why you know what is it that you want to particularly look for in a combination of different ratios. And we will also discuss where you can find the items that I've been discussing like sales and income, book value, cash flow, dividend, where you can find that on a company's balance sheet. Dividends are pretty easy to look up because companies announce them. But the rest of them, where do you find them on a company's balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow statement? And how do you analyze them? So that's going to be it for tonight. Um, It looks like I'll probably have to do a little bit deeper of a discussion because I didn't get to everything that I wanted to cover tonight. So I'll do a little bit deeper of a discussion to, on tomorrow's episode on some of these some of these items and valuation ratios. I don't want to take up any more of my listeners' time tonight, so I uh, I'm going to end the episode here. I do hope you enjoyed the show. I hope that you learned a little something tonight. Tomorrow night we're going to start out with with the things that I discussed, but then we're also going to move on to some Um, debt concepts, debt valuation concepts. So, and particularly on the risk side. So concepts such as risk of default, loss given default, probability of loss, um, things like that, that apply to the debt side of investing. So many of these concepts that we're discussing are somewhat elementary when it comes to investing. So I'm working on for any of my listeners that are already very familiar with some of these concepts. I'm working on a series of video lessons that will be part of a broader sort of educational platform that we're going to be releasing on, on uh, macro view uh, website. And those lessons will be much more complex and sophisticated, but those lessons are probably a good six to nine months, if not longer. Um, I've got a lot of other things that I'm working on. As many of you know, I have uh, my own, my own business and uh, that keeps me very, very busy. 
So I've got I've got a couple of other things that I'm working on um, just personally, and I do this podcast. So it's it's not. Uh, I I also I you know I have a uh, a girlfriend that I have to tend to. So um, I I got to treat her right. I got to make sure that she she gets the time that she deserves because she's an amazing woman. So I I don't want to uh, don't want to bore any of my listeners if they feel as though this is a little bit too elementary for them after this series. I will be doing an episode on global warming or climate change and the positives that could come out of global warming and climate change as compared to just all you ever hear about is the negatives and how it's going to be a disaster. And we're going to discuss what kind of disaster it might be um, according to the politicized models uh, that are out there if their worst case scenarios were to come about. So after this series, I'll be discussing that. I'll do an episode on that. It's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be extremely interesting for for listeners. So I, I I really hope you'll tune into that. Now, if you're not listening to tonight's episode from the show page, you really should be. Um, so head over to macroviewnews.com. Look for the first post on the, on the homepage, uh, which will have the formulas related to tonight's show, how to calculate all the ratios I discussed, how to calculate compound annual growth rate, and it'll give examples of that. And I'll also post some resources where those of you that are interested in delving deeper and learning more about some of these concepts, valuation ratios, uh, how to calculate compound annual growth rate, why compound annual growth rate is important. I'll have some resources for you so that you can delve deeper into those topics. Now, while you're there, do not forget to follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Links to both our Twitter and Facebook pages are at the bottom of the website. So you can find them right there. You can click on them. You can go. You can follow us. It's really easy. And also, don't forget to uh, to subscribe to our email list so that you'll be notified when new episodes are released. And that way, you never miss an episode of the Macro View. And lastly, and most importantly, don't forget to share the Macro View with your friends and family and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Tune back in tomorrow night and take care, folks. You have been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time to help spread the logic of liberty.